0: Welcome to Develop Lex, a middle tech production hosted by me, Weston Lockhart, Ross Bogus, and Evan Knowles. This series will focus on the ins and outs of real estate development and investing, where we'll have the opportunity to sit down with developers of our cities, veterans of the industry, and key people that have, over time, made a massive impact on communities and neighborhoods. The purpose of this series is to be able to bring a knowledge base to our audience beyond that of what reading a book or watching a how-to video ever could and educate from those who have done it by hearing their stories both good and bad along the way. We feel that historically the learnings of real estate have been inaccessible without being connected and we would love to open the doors to the next generation of doers as well as shine a light on how visions of community have been brought to life. We hope you enjoy. Before diving in, we'll get quick word sponsored by SVN Stone Commercial Real Estate, a full-service commercial real estate firm located in Lexington, Kentucky, affiliated with the SVN International Network, which is comprised of over 1,600 advisors and staff and 200-plus offices across the globe. The SVN Stone team consists of experienced commercial real estate advisors in the heart of the Bluegrass. SVN provides commercial real estate services to large corporations, middle market businesses, and individual entrepreneurial investors. Serving the Greater Lexington area, SVN offers advisory services for sales, leasing, management, and development of commercial properties locally, regionally, and nationally. With transaction volume of over $400 million, the advisors at SVN Stone Commercial Real Estate have vast experience and deep understanding of all aspects of commercial real estate. We are also sponsored by Lexington Pavement Sweep. Lexington Pavement Sweep is a full-service property maintenance company operating in Central Kentucky, specializing in parking lot sweeping, day portering, landscaping, and snow removal. From established retail properties to construction sites and everything in between, whether your property needs a daytime presence or a nightly sweep, Lexington Pavement Sweep will be there to ensure your property is starting the day pristine. Lexington Pavement Sweep is proud to be a part of DevelopLex, bringing the best of the best to all listeners. We are also sponsored by Community Trust Bank. Community Trust offers a wide variety of home loans, commercial loans, and small business loans to suit your financial needs, as well as mobile banking, internet banking, and bill pay. Their friendly and professional staff would love to assist you at one of their six Lexington locations. Community Trust Bank is committed to building communities built on trust. Member FDIC, equal housing lender, subject to credit approval. Welcome back to Develop Lex. Today you have on uh, me, Weston Lockhart, and Ross Boggess. Uh, We are at Awesome Inc. here with Phil Holbeck. Phil is the founder, president, and CEO of Lexington's real estate company. Since 2000, LRC has been actively involved in the transformation of downtown Lexington, developing more than $50 million worth of real estate in the downtown area. He's also the co-founder of Wild Duck Investments, a micro angel venture capital firm. So we do want to give Phil the opportunity to tell us about himself though.
1: So Phil, welcome on.
2: Thanks so much. Great to be here, guys. We are
1: so pumped you're here. And the cool thing about it, we've had a lot of folks on the podcast that have grown up in Lexington. But one of the more intriguing things is that you're not.
2: No, I'm a total transplant. I love that. So
1: (laughs) so tell us a little bit about how you got to Lexington and how you got started in everything.
2: Yep. As a quick side note, economic development theory for cities used to be keep your YPs, keep your young professionals in town, don't let them leave. And cities started to realize that was kind of an insular approach. And so what has worked much better is now cities say, go out into the world learn new ideas, but we will never lose touch with you and we will bring you back. So I think for any city to thrive, bringing in new ideas is really important. And so, yeah, I'm a transplant. My mom was a school teacher. Dad was a pastor in the Navy. So we lived all over the place. I lived in Puerto Rico for a few years as a kid. If I've had a couple cocktails, I can still speak Spanish (laughs) and um, spent most of my life in San Diego, went to undergrad in LA, grad school in Oregon. I was the first kid to go through a sports marketing program. My background more than development is really consumer packaged goods and branding. So after I went through the Warsaw sports marketing program at University of Oregon, I had a lot of job opportunities within sports, not because I was the brightest, but because I was the first, right? And you can't let that first graduate fail. So I worked at Upper Deck Uh, When I left Upper Deck, I was the marketing director there. Upper Deck is a baseball card company. And so what was great is, you know, I had friends who worked at P&G or other big companies. They might launch a product every two or three years because it was so much risk, right? It was a multi hundred million billion dollar product whereas our product launches might be 15 or 20 million or whatever the number is, we got to launch a lot of products. So after four or five years, uh, I was ready to do something else, ended up moving to Lexington. And when I got here, the first thing I noticed was in the Lexington Herald-Leader, there was a series of articles called Misery for Rent. And so this was uh, wealthy landlords taking advantage of Uh, less wealthy renters. And it just made me so upset. There was a picture in that uh, series of articles (coughs) which showed a toilet not attached to plumbing. It just went to the crawl space down below. And so we immediately got into real estate, started fixing up properties in lower income areas and rented them out for no more money than the low quality units. And our thought was economically, that's going to force slum slumlords either to drop their rents or raise their quality. So at the same time, the second big thing that hit me when I moved here was there really wasn't a young professional voice in town. It was the older generation that ran things. And that was such an Interesting change from San Diego, where with companies like Qualcomm and so on, there are a lot of young professionals who were the decision makers. So we started a group, community involvement has always been very, very important to me. We started a group called LIPA, Lexington Young Professionals Association. In the first year, we got a thousand members. I think just because there was such demand, it's not that we did anything that great. That was my first year in Lexington. The young professional love, and the real estate love came together. And I thought, let's start doing housing downtown for young professionals. So that's how we got to where we are now. That's awesome.
0: And so give us somewhat of a timeline as to when that was. So we're sitting in the year 2022. Now you moved to Lexington when?
2: So I moved here in 2000. And the next year we started LRC, Lexington's real estate company. So it's, yeah, it's been a 20 year push. And we are, I know you said 50 million. We are about to go over the $100 million threshold in development, which is cool. Now that doesn't mean we own a hundred million. It means it could be worth about 70 million, but, and not all of that has been developed for our company. We have clients as well, but, um, it's something we're, we're very proud of to about to go over a hundred million dollars in development.
0: That is, that is a huge feat. Um, so, When you moved to Lexington, did you have a previous experience in real estate or kind of how did that come about? So obviously, like you came, you saw the picture, you realized that was a passion of yours. Did you have that passion previous to Lexington or was this kind of your jump into it?
2: So one of the things that uh, I did not have that passion nor that expertise. And I think, uh, you know, I tell my kids now that 20 years have gone by. They are ones, two are in college and ones in high school. And they're at the age where they start to wonder, what am I going to do with my life? And I think my path to real estate development is a great example. If you never know how you're going to get there, it's very much of a winding road. And so, as I mentioned, my background was consumer packaged goods. It was branding. It's all about the consumer. And that is, I think, the reason our projects have succeeded, In 2010, when some of our first big projects were hitting the market, maybe 2008, there were several downtown projects that failed. And so there were developers who had developed in the suburbs and thought, well, I know development. I can come downtown. There's not much overlap between suburban versus downtown development because the consumer is very different, right? Success in development isn't understanding how contractors work. It's understanding consumer needs and desires and behaviors. It's understanding the capital stack. Really, people think, even my kids wonder, what is a developer? And the skills are really identical to brand management. If you picture a wagon wheel, that developer is just the center of the wheel. And all the spokes going out to the edge are the different experts who you touch, which are your architect, your banker, your attorney, your contractor, the city. And so it's really just being able to create a vision and then manage it uh, in a, a profitable way. But it was, I think, that consumer packaged goods background where I realized, boy, something's missing in this town. And that is young professional voice and therefore products for young professionals.
0: So just to back up a little bit, and then I want to talk about how you've been able to fill that void um, after that. So if somebody came up and shook your hand and said, you said, hey, my name's Phil. This is
2: what I do. What would you just how would you say this is what I do today? So we are the downtown experts. Simple as that. That's it. And so. I feel like we're doing more of a branding story than a a real estate story. But back in the day when I was getting my MBA, you know, mission statements were all the rage. And so they fell out of favor as the world started moving more quickly and people realized like the Wendy's mission statement was 60 words. There were 60 MBAs in a room and it was like, oh, everyone gets a word. Ladies and gentlemen, creating world class hamburgers for blah, blah, blah or the school my kids went to was, we are a K through K-8 in private institution, blah, blah, blah. Well, no kidding, every school is. So then Ted Kawasaki came along, this amazing marketing executive from Apple, and he said, forget mission statements, we're creating mantras. A mantra is a three to seven word phrase that everybody inside and outside of the organization can beat the same drum. So at my kid's school, we teach it to We Teach Courage. It could be a five-year-old singing at the Christmas concert for the first time or an eighth grade doing your graduation thesis or a parent dropping your kid off for the first time. We Teach Courage makes sense. I tell you that because the same is true for our company, The Downtown Experts. I don't care if you're asking, where do I buy a hot dog downtown? I want you to ask us. We don't have to be just about real estate. We view ourselves as the downtown experts.
0: So just to give a semblance kind of of when you see some projects downtown, what Phil is associated with, give us a sense of kind of your scale or what some of the projects that you've been involved in recently that people would recognize if they're driving around downtown Lexington.
2: Yep. I have a... um soft spot for YPs for young professionals. So for those YPs listening, don't do what I did um, to start. Our first development project was Maine and Rose, which was $20 million and 96 condos and 25,000 square feet of retail. We were very fortunate and did very well with that project. But I think building to scale over time is a smarter approach. That project is our largest to date, we developed the Nun Building Lofts, which is at the corner of Short and MLK. That was uh, 26 residential units. Carson's Restaurant, uh, many people know the gateway to downtown. Carson's and Gus's Chicken is one of our projects. That might
0: be one of the more notable buildings in downtown at this point is
1: Carson's. <laughs> That's exactly That's right. Crazy cool story going from Coach Craft to Carson's. It's- and.
2: It's crazy. And the restaurant owner gets all the credit for he uh did all sorts of amazing things inside. It's a cinder block building with which is a and it's a zero lot line building, which means there's no land on either side. So the sides of Carsons, when you're in there, there's no windows. But if you look, he's created sort of fake windows with a little bit of ambient light and everything. It's a very peaceful place. I wish we could take credit for those ideas, but He and his contractor, Mike Elder, with Sawyer Elder Construction, get all the credit. The 500's on Main, people may know, it's across from Rep Arena on Main Street. The second phase was gonna be 16 units, and the developer, unfortunately, had some financial difficulties, and that project ended up with a bank in Eastern Kentucky, and they weren't sure how to do downtown development, so they hired us. And then my... um, my biggest and favorite client is a nonprofit called Community Ventures. They're a statewide nonprofit, and their goal is to improve quality of life uh, for Kentucky's neighborhoods. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we've done a couple of projects for them. One was called Chef Space in Louisville, which is basically a business incubator, sort of like Awesome Inc., but it's just for uh, food operators, food trucks. People who are starting up, lower income, uh, people who are trying to get into the food industry who may not have the money to buy their own $500,000 kitchen or develop their own kitchen of that size. So instead, you pay a monthly rental fee and share this giant commercial kitchen. And then our most recent project is The Met, which we can talk about in a little bit, which is at the corner of Midland and East 3rd. So that is how the acronym The Met came up. I wish I could say as a branding guy, it was my name, but there's this amazing uh, woman, Yvonne Giles, who lives in the East End. And I had names like The Bridge and so on that I was so proud of. And then she said, let's call it The Met. And everybody <laughs> loved it.
1: Y'all needed to have like an opening gala or something called The Met Gala. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Not too late. Well, that's great.
0: I think that um, I think that something that is neat about what you've done in development. Um, when you name all of those places that there's kind of a common theme is that you consistently have kind of catered that towards those neighborhoods or towards downtown or towards the East end. Um, Is that kind of been your strategy is, you know, find an area of town and develop for those residents or are you thinking about idea first and then trying to slot that into a place or what has kind of been your consistent strategy on how you think through a development?
2: So, in terms of location, the answer is yes. We definitely want to stay downtown and stay with infill projects. National Association of Realtors data shows 72% of people want to live in a walkable community. Millennials and younger drive 29% fewer miles than uh, older generations. For the first time in history, the average number of square feet in new construction was less than it was. The prior year, and this has been about four or five years in a row, which all shows a trend of people wanting to live downtown. So if we are going to be competitive as a city, we must recruit knowledge-based young professionals. If we are going to cr- recruit knowledge-based young professionals, we must have the amenities that they want, which is a walkable, bikeable community, great downtown restaurants and bars, places to live downtown. So I'm passionate about creating places for YPs to live. Now you take our largest and favorite client, Community Ventures. We started this by saying my mom was a school teacher, my dad was a pastor. I I was never going to be a pastor, but I wanted to give back and I do want to. Community involvement is huge to me. I'm able to do it in a different way. So community ventures whose whole goal is to improve Kentucky's neighborhoods and I get to be involved with helping them develop properties. Oh my gosh, that—that that is, I don't know, that's my my perfect world and I'm getting to do it. So
1: that's so cool. So talking about one of the community ventures projects, um, mentioned the Met, uh, Midland and East Third. It's a pretty cool project. I, I've heard you talk about a little bit of the the length of study that you all took to get to Even putting footers in the ground and um, a pretty creative capital stack. Could you tell a little bit more about that?
2: Yep. So, there's, um, I think, two different things to talk about. One is making sure that the community's dreams were fulfilled. And then the other is the capital stack. I think a lot of times when people see development, they just focus on the construction side. That probably is 10% of the timeline of a project. For over 30 years, Lexington, did uh, what are called small area plans for the East End neighborhood. My good friend, Anthony Wright, was the economic development director for the latest. And really that for 30 years, these plans said we need food, finance, healthcare, retail services, jobs. So instead of starting with a project and then trying to make it fit the small area plan, we flipped that. We started with the small area plan And then came up with a project that matched it. So if you go to the Met now, you will see places like Deviate, which are food-based. Deviate Kitchen only hires second-chance employees. They are, quote-unquote, non-professional servers. And if you go on Yelp, they are the number one rated customer service restaurant in town, which is really cool. Every business that's in there is minority-owned in one way or another, female or ethnically-based. So we're providing jobs for the neighborhood, we're providing services for the neighborhood. Two of the spaces are artist-based, and so low-income artists can rent a studio for $300 a month, and as part of their rental, they get financial literacy training and learn how to make a living from their craft. So all of that is really cool. And from the design standpoint, we did two things that the neighborhood asked for. One was make sure there's no back to the building. I think community ventures could have made a lot more money if the retail went along Midland Avenue. But if you go to the Met at Midland and Third, you will see that the retail goes down Third Street. Part of that is to pull people down Third Street so they go into the neighborhood and start to support the other neighborhood businesses that aren't even at the Met. And we encourage new development to fill in what they call the missing teeth and the smile. And then the other thing you'll see is we. The neighborhood didn't want the back of the building facing it and then finally if you look at the building you will see some peaked roofs like triangular shaped roofs which really serve no purpose on a building like that but they are representative of the shotgun houses that existed in the neighborhood so if you were to look closely they those roof lines have the same rise and run as the original shotgun houses of the east end so Those are some of the things people may not notice that are really items that the neighborhood asked for.
0: That's very cool. And that is what you would define as a mixed use project, correct?
2: Yep, that's mixed use. Mixed use is just uh, more than one use, a mix of uses. So we have 44 residential apartments up above, and we have about 30,000 square feet of retail on the first floor. And we try and put retail on the first floor whenever we can instead of office because the goal to create a 24-7 city is really having that first floor active as much as possible. when I first moved here, Lexington had offices all over the first floor and you leave at two PM and downtown is shut down. So to the extent that you can replace an office on the first floor with retail and then above it, you put office or residential, you in theory have a more active community.
0: That's cool. And I think what's neat about all's business model is that you are investing in downtown and downtown has a lot of good things going for it. But it's also, I think that a lot of people think of downtown as purely like main street and then the streets around it. You're obviously showing that like downtown kind of extends into the East End. For me, downtown is almost goes towards Chevy Chase. You know, it's all, it's all about walkability, which is something that Lexington is really trying to cater towards because it's just really not a super walkable town. But everybody wants it to be, or a lot was seventy plus percent of people want it to be that. Um, so another cool thing that's going on in Lexington right now is the Town Branch Trail. It, is that going alongside any of your developments? And can you speak into that a little bit?
2: Yep, that's a great question. And so you're exactly right. Everybody, study after study shows people want walkable communities. We tried to recruit a hotel group to Lexington, which is a very popular hotel brand, I won't mention. And they only go in walkable communities, and we couldn't find them a site in Lexington. But So that's the, the negative side of it. But the positive, that is starting to change, and it's changing before our eyes. Several years ago, we were involved with helping to get the Legacy Trail completed, which goes now goes all the way to Georgetown. But it originally went from the Horse Park to Isaac Murphy Art, Memorial Art Garden, which is Literally where the Met is located. Now the city is putting in, thanks to some federal funding, the Town Branch Trail. And it's amazing. You can start in the Rupp Arena parking lot, go all through downtown, not just walking, but on your bike if you want. And so there's no conflict between pedestrians and bikes or cars and bikes. And that Town Branch Trail literally goes adjacent to the Met. We are so thankful for it that we literally, if you were to go to Deviate Kitchen or Manchester Coffee, uh, their second location is at the Met, and you were to stand in the courtyard between those two places, look at the bricks we used, look at the pavers we used. It's the same exact materials that they used for the trail. And although there is in legal terms a delineation between the private sector and public sector land, we don't want the consumer to see that. We are very happy if they veer off the trail right into our courtyard and stop and hang out with our retailers. We On my Instagram, I just put a bunch of posts out about our new bike racks, and all my friends are like, oh my gosh, you're ridiculous posting about bike racks. But it's really important. We even are, within the next two weeks, installing signage at the Met that is pedestrian and bike scale. So you're riding your bike now from Rupp Arena, lower parking lot, to the horse park, Riding along Midland Avenue, and all of a sudden on your bike, you see signage at eye level while you're on your bike that says coffee shop, nail salon, hair salon, art gallery, deviate. So I think that's pretty important. And I think that positions Lexington well for the future as people want more walkable and bikeable communities.
1: So, the uh, controversial question how do you feel about e bikes?
2: I'm a bigger fan of e-bikes than
1: e-cigarettes. <laughs> I like that. My, my, my brother hates e-bikes. It's cheating. I'm like, no, it gets more people out.
0: I don't know. Is a scooter considered an e-bike? Do, uh, do those count as e-bikes? I don't know. No, I did spend forty four dollars this weekend on a scooter, um, over an hour and a half ride. So you think I think bought a good bike. For you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the issue. Well, I will tell you what, we,
2: we we rented those public scooters, uh, a buddy and I, when we went to Columbus, Ohio, to watch my beloved Oregon Ducks play Ohio State uh, victoriously, and we were going faster than the cars in the bike lane. My wife and I were in Greenville, South Carolina, which is a great city. Uh, for us to model their main street was like our vine street used to be racing traffic and no retail they converted it to two-way streets put in pedestrian level signage and if you go to greenville now restaurant after restaurant after restaurant the people who are anti-two-way streets in lexington say well the cars won't move as fast through vine street and we say no kidding how many young professionals have ever moved to a city because they can race through an empty downtown and if you don't believe me on the emptiness Close your eyes and imagine walking from Triangle Park to Thoroughbred Park along Fine Street and tell me how many retail places you see. Very, very few. In Greenville, not only have they made the Main Street pedestrian scale, but they also have a great trail system called the
1: Swamp Rabbit
2: Rabbit Trail. That's right. And so when we were there, it was about 8,000 degrees in the summer. So I uh, did get one of those electric bikes. And my wife to this day makes fun of me because I couldn't believe I could go up to number 10 <laughs> on it. And so, yeah, uh, they were fun. Love them.
1: I, I love the heart for downtown because uh,
2: I heard somebody say once
1: on, on the table that downtown is where people come to celebrate and people come to protest. And the the Congress for New Urbanism has some really cool things, um, just principles uh, about downtown. And
2: uh, for people unfamiliar with CNU. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it and how you're involved? Yep. So new urbanism might be a term that not all the listeners are familiar with, and new urbanism is basically just a new take on urbanism. If you think the history back to the history of our country, we started on the East Coast, and as places like New York and Philadelphia and Boston were developed, they were developed without cars. They are compact, tight cities. People lived above their bakery. You could walk to everything. There was no need for a car because they didn't exist. As uh, development moved to the west, to Lexington, Chicago, and so on, you could see more sprawl. And by the time we got to the West Coast, where I went to undergrad in LA, uh, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't cross the street literally with you know without a car. So it's it's exciting to see. Um, Lexington's planning department look at things like Imagine Nicholasville Road or Imagine New Circle. And the picture for Imagine New Circle was showed a pedestrian trying to cross the street. So new urbanism simply is trying to make places more like they used to be, walkable communities. We're not anti-car or anything like that, but just like no one should be forced to walk, you shouldn't be forced to drive a car. So it's a place for all people. And to your point, downtown is everybody's living room. We want it to be comfortable and, and peaceful. And so I've been fortunate enough to be asked to serve on the, the board of this national organization, which is called the Congress for the New Urbanism. I'm happy to serve on there, one, to push that vision forward, but two, just to help Lexington, we can bring an outside expert now. And it's not simply, Oh, this is just Phil trying to get something done. You know, it's an organization we're involved with. that really does help cities. So,
0: yeah, that's cool. When, when I get to meet um, a developer that's more uh, forward focused um, it's, it's inspiring, but it's also uh, exciting just because like the neighborhoods that I gravitate towards in Lexington are ones like Kenwick or Southland drive, or even call it like Romney road and Chevy chase which are all very walkable neighborhoods. And they're also all uh, ironically within New Circle Road so that they can get to downtown closely. But it is neat to see that like the, the new ideas that a lot of people have for Lexington is really just a way to bring it back together. So that's at least encouraging to me. So that probably is a good transition to our next section of um, just talking about the future of Lexington and so from your perspective, and obviously we've talked about some of these ideas, but what do you think, like, first priority, next five years um, that's not already in transition, what do you think the city needs? Um, that can be broad or, or very narrow.
2: So I, I really do think giving the planning department the freedom to implement infill development is critical, And I know that some people may think, oh, that sounds self-serving because that's what you do. Again, flip that script. We do that because that's what helps our community. And so if you think about sprawl, I'm going to talk about sprawl for our brand as a city, and then I'm going to give you some numbers of why it's important to avoid that. If somewhere in Iowa has sprawl, they may lose some cornfields. And that's not great. But and people may sit in traffic longer and their quality of life drops but it may or may not be catastrophic for them. By contrast, sprawl is catastrophic to Lexington. There is something called the Cincinnati Arch, which is an arch underground of limestone. And it the top of that arch hits, hits the, we hit the top of that arch in Lexington and Fayette County. There are only so many acres in the entire country that are appropriate for raising horses who get strong bones from having the limestone in the dirt and making bourbon. It literally, is our brand. If you, if I gave you 100 cities around the country and said, what do they stand for? What's their Ted Kawasaki mantra? You probably couldn't come up with it. We are fortunate enough to actually have a brand, and sprawl would take that uh, away. We would lose horse farms and lose acreage for not just horses, but distilleries and so on. So it's critical to have dense urban development. And when I say dense, I'm not advocating for Chicago or New York. If you looked at a bunch of benchmark cities, including Greenville and Boulder and a lot of secondary and tertiary cities, we have far fewer people per square mile than any of those benchmark cities. So we're not even as dense as mid-sized cities like Greenville. And the reason that that is so important is if we wanna have the quality of life that everyone in Lexington desires and deserves, and if we wanna have enough money to support police and everything else, the city has to have a healthy budget. And so I looked at this study years ago. Keep in mind, everybody's city has a different tax structure. But generally speaking, if you believe that a city has a product, the city's only product is land and there's a finite amount of it, then for that city to be successful financially, they need to maximize the amount of revenue per acre per year. So in one city, it showed that single family homes might bring in $2,500 per acre per year. And retail strip malls brought in $8,000 per acre per year and big box brought in $12,000. Mixed use brought in $300,000 per acre per year. It wasn't even close. And now if we compare that, if we bring a local example, Main and Rose, which is on Main Street that we developed, and this may not be true anymore, but after we finished it was the number one property tax generator in all of Lexington, more than the big blue building or anything. And if you chop something up into a hundred little condos plus retail and you're bringing in not just property tax, but sales tax and so on, that's a three acre site that was bringing in over a million dollars per year. And it had been a parking lot that was bringing in about $9,000 per year. That's a huge difference. Just one property bringing in a million new dollars per year. And at a time when the city's budget was 250 or $300 million dollars, That alone starts to move the needle. So I'm not talking about creating Manhattan with 50-story buildings. In Lexington, our mixed-use buildings are between three and six stories. I don't think that's too much density. But that alone can move the needle and uh, create everything we need to have enough revenue to support our police and so on. And so that is a long answer to your number one priority question. And more
0: so, you're thinking – strategically too on that. Like you're thinking the trickle down effects of if you can produce that revenue to the city and then be able to regenerate wealth back into the city. That's, I mean, that's part of it, right?
2: Well, that's right. And so I think that is, look, that's the voters and elected officials decisions. There's two ways to slice it. If there's more money, the city may not need all of it and all of us might get to pay lower taxes. like. None of us like having to pay as many taxes as we do. So if there's more money, maybe we pay 80% of what we pay now. Or maybe the elected officials say we're keeping it all, but we're giving it back to support YPs or to support East End or job development or whatever. So I don't know how it would be used. I just know it's better for us if we have that opportunity.
0: So talking about the project of the Met, obviously that was kind of a lower income neighborhood. Um, and it's still probably, if you look around the city of Lexington, it is. But it's a very historic neighborhood and what you would consider downtown. How does like the capital stack occur there? And how do you get the financing for a project of that size in a, na- in a neighborhood that might not
2: be able to finance it itself? So it's a, it's a great question. Infill development... By definition, is more risky than suburban development. A suburban suburban developer might develop a hundred homes and build them a couple at a time. If you do that with infill like Main and Rose or the Met, you have to do all of those homes at once. Now you look at a neighborhood like the East End. The per capita income was seventeen thousand dollars. The auto ownership was thirty-one percent, the lowest auto ownership in the city. And this, you know, literally, I have cried over this. I've been into homes there where In the winter, people put up blankets to keep the wind from coming in through the walls. Everybody deserves an appropriate quality of life and good quality housing, but it becomes very difficult when you want to subsidize and have lower rents and and so on, so that it's affordable housing. And so with the Met, the capital stack was very complex. It included a TIF district. It included something called new market tax credits, and then it included the debt. So on a $20 million project, uh, new market tax credits were used where they're sold on the secondary market and it eventually uh, results in equity in a project. But that still resulted in a gap of $14 million. And if you were to do a market rate project, you might go to one bank and they're like, yeah, here's $14 million. We had to go to five or six different banks. You talk to bank A, they'll give you a million dollars. The next bank gives you three million. The next bank gives you a million. So we had to cobble all those banks together to support that 14 million. And imagine the attorney for each bank wants different things in their loan documents. It was a complex structure. Kevin Smith is the CEO of Community Ventures. He has taken that organization under his wing for 25 years, he was their second employee. And he gets all the credit in the world for figuring out how to do this. He seems to be aw shucks, but he's London School Economics trained. He and I gave a presentation to an FDIC group out of Chicago and a woman who's been in the business for 20 plus years said that's the most complex capital stack she had ever seen. And so it takes a special skill set. And that's the reason in Lexington you don't see so much infill development going on, especially in lower income areas. Uh, It's just shockingly complex. And so Kevin Smith is someone who, gosh, I can't speak highly enough, deserves a lot of credit for that.
1: So uh, some of the new developments we've seen in Lexington are like the summit. Um, They take exactly what downtowns are supposed to be, or at least what they were, um, and try to recreate it. Where, where do you think downtown now, 20-something years post all when your work got started, where are we in that and where's it going?
2: So we, we are fans of projects like the Summit, whether they're in downtowns or not. The reason that downtowns themselves have been so popular across the country, not just in Lexington over the past decade, is a demographic phenomenon referred to as boom, bust, and echo. And it refers to baby boomers, then my generation, which is the bust, and then echo boomers or millennials. And so everybody heard for years, baby boomers are the largest generation in the history of the country. There's 80 million of them. They're going to destroy social security. There's not going to be enough workers behind them to support it and and everything. And that was held up as fact when my generation came along and there were hardly any of us. But then the millennials came along and there are 84 million millennials, more millennials than there are boomers. So that's the term boom, bust, and echo. And so how does that relate to downtowns being hot and people wanting to live downtown? Think about where those boomers are in their life. They're empty nesters. Their kids have moved out. They're not old enough yet to go to assisted living. They want a great lifestyle, but their kids are gone. They want to downsize. They want to move to downtowns and be in a walkable community. The Del Webb retirement villages aren't where those people want to go anymore. They want to be in downtown in a mix of, um, of generations. The bus generation, me, all of our kids are in school. When you are probably 35 to 55, you flee to the suburbs because you want the best schools for your kids. And the best schools across the country are in the suburbs, historically not in downtowns. But we don't move the needle because there's hardly any of us. And then all of a sudden, here come the echo boomers, 84 million of them. They are now out of college, maybe getting married, but for the most part, don't have kids yet. So where do they want to live? They want to live downtown and go out to bars at night and have a great quality of life and social life and all that. So the two largest generations in the history of the country are both at the age Right now, where they want to live downtown, and that's really what's driving downtown uh, demand across the country.
0: I think that's a good way to kind of exit the interview. And Phil, we just want to say we're we're really excited that you were able to come on today, and uh, we're excited for a lot of the developers that we've had on, but that have been kind of more downtown focused because it, it really does feel like it does feel like there's a lot of people that are really kind of focused on on downtown and wanting to live downtown and play and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's cool. It's cool to have people that are forward, forward thinking um, in leadership in Lexington.
2: Well, thank you guys. And thank you not just for having me on, but for what you're doing. I'm absolutely overwhelmed by what the two of you are doing. And if there were a hundred more of you guys, we would be moving up, not just from top 10 to top one or two in the country. So all kidding aside, thank you guys. This is, this is amazing for Lexington, just creating this education for our community. So thank you so much. We
1: appreciate it, appreciate it Phil.